It is a pleasure to be here with you this morning. If you could please turn in your Bibles with me to Malachi chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible with you, you can find one in the pew in front of you. And if you need help finding the passage, just ask somebody beside you and uh, hopefully they can give you a lending hand. Before I begin, I just want to reiterate, uh, Cora and I just are thanksgiving for this church family and what a pleasure it is to, to be with you all, to, to covenant with you in this church, and now it is a great pleasure, pleasure for me uh, even to bring God's word to you all this morning. So in the book of Malachi, in Malachi chapter 3, I'll be reading from verse 13 and all the way through verse 18 this morning. So if you're there in your Bible, you can follow along. And this is God's true word this morning. And it is authoritative for all of us. God's word says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, that we might know you, the true and living God. So I pray, Lord, that you would work even by your spirit, even through the words that I am about to say, that you might touch the hearts of the souls in this room, and Lord, that you would not only affect the outward actions, but our inward affections by your word this morning. So I pray that you would work powerfully among us, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning by asking a, a simple question. Do you know if you are on the right side of history? Do you belong to the right side of history? You know, that is a question that is often asked in society, especially in our very polarized age. There is much debate about who belongs on the right side of history. You know, are you a liberal or a conservative? In the States, you know, are you a Democrat or a Republican? Is being on the right or the left of the political spectrum on the right side of history or on the wrong side of history? Even practically, we consider even the social issues 
of our day and age. The, the moral progressives of our day, the ones who promote the LGBTQ falsehood, who advocate for, for all kinds of sexual immorality, who promote abortion, anybody who does not openly affirm these opinions are considered to be on the wrong side of history. Even our very feminist and egalitarian age looks at the, the biblical complementarian view and thinks of it as old-fashioned and oppressive and on the wrong side of history. Even more practically, by 2035, if you're not driving your electric vehicle, you're going to be considered to be on the wrong side of history. But what people fail to understand this where when they're asking this question, is they're always asking it according to human standards, according to standards that are ever changing. They are, are changing. After all, just 70 years ago, the Holocaust was deemed an atrocity. Rightfully so. It was deemed to be on the wrong side of history. The Nazis were deemed to be on the wrong side of history. But in 2023, nobody's willing to say that the the massacring and raping of Jewish women and children is wrong. People are, are finding it hard to say that that belongs on the wrong side of history. So this question, it's a tough question to answer if you do not have a consistent standard. Because as, as history goes along down the, the tunnel of time, people's views change and so how people view to be who is on the right and wrong side of history also changes. But if we want to answer this question honestly, we must come to a single standard. And so that is what I hope for us this morning, that we would even come to know God's standard of who is on the right side of his dividing line, even the title of the message this morning. God has a standard a standard of who belongs on the right side of his dividing line. A standard that distinguishes the righteous from the wicked. Those who serve God from those who do not serve him. And what this distinction is meant to do for us this morning is for, for many of you, I hope, it is to be a message of comfort. Knowing that, that God has a special loving care for those who belong to the righteous to God's side of history. But I also hope that this message serves as a, a great warning. A warning to those who might think in their lives and they look out in society, they think, I'm on the right side of history. Everyone agrees with me. But you're looking at the wrong standard. You need to beware. You must judge yourself against God's standard. And so I hope this morning that even those who, who belong to the wicked side of history would be warned and would consider their hope and their need for Christ anew this morning. And so as I hope to bring clarity to this question, so that you, all of you here, might know where you stand on, on God's dividing line, I hope to bring clarity to this question. I'm going to do this by looking at three things from our passage this morning. First, we will see the, the accusation of the ungodly, the accusations of those who, who hate the Lord. Then we will see the reality of those who, who do fear the Lord, the reality of the godly. 
And finally, we will circle back and we will consider then the distinction of God between the godly and the ungodly, between the righteous and the unrighteous. And so those are the three points you could find in your handout this morning. But so the first, let us consider then this accusation of the ungodly. Our passage in verse 13 is the beginning of what commentators consider to be the sixth disputation of the book of Malachi. There are six sequences of of questions and answers and statements initiated by God with the words, but you say. And there's six of these in the book of Malachi. At each one, God is using this to try to flesh out and and remind his people and, and reveal to his people that their worship is actually hypocritical and it is a false worship of God. God is not pleased in their worship of him. And so we come to, to our passage this morning, we come to verse 13, and we see this final disputation, disputation. God highlights the blasphemous accusations that the Israelites are making against him. If you just look at verses 14 and 15, it says, you have said, speaking of the Israelites, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. We see here in these words this ungodly accusation. This is the accusation that the Israelites are are making against God to say that it is vain to serve God. It is, it is not worth their time and energy to put their, their lives and devotion before the Lord. They think it is not worth it. And so they look around them and they see the evildoers are prospering. And they think it would be better for us to be belonging to the wicked than to the righteous. It is vain to serve God. But it's important that we must see that these are, are ungodly accusations. They are false accusations. They are accusations of people who are deceived. They do not know the true God for who he truly is. And we see these these two deceptions. First, we see that the Israelites have a false expectation of God. They accuse God that he does not reward the righteous, that he does not care for those who are righteous. Even though in the book of Malachi, the Israelites have been graciously brought back to the promised land after their exile, though it was not their, their former glory that it once was, but they have come back to the land, and even in, in, in coming back, they have picked up these religious rituals. They, they are doing the temple sacrifices as prescribed by Moses, but these people were deceived They were deceived in their ungodliness because while they outwardly appeared to serve the Lord, their hearts were very far from God. Even Pastor Paul was was praying to that end this morning. It is a great temptation for all of us to have our outward appearance to be that of serving God while our hearts are very cold and far from Him. And we see this. God God points this out once again in in chapter 1 and verse 13. And He says this, 
But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or is sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? Says the Lord. These Israelites thought that merely appealing to God's law would result in in immediate blessings. They were deceived with ungodly expectations that was driving their false accusations against God. They were not fearing the Lord of hosts. They were treating God more as the genie from Aladdin. You know, you just rub him the right way and you get your three wishes granted. No, they were willing to say, God, we will mournfully come and we will scratch your back and we will appease your demands so long as you come back here and you give us a good back scratch. That is how they assumed, expected God to be. And these people were in great danger because in their outward obedience, their hearts were still far from the Lord. They brought tithes, they did religious rituals, but they did so without any fear or reverence for the true and living God. And so we need to beware of this ungodly expectation that is driving these accusations. But we see on the flip side a second false accusation or what I would call the ungodly assumption that God does not punish the wicked for their evil deeds. The Israelites are concerned because they think God isn't rewarding us for our righteousness, but on top of that, they're bitter because they look at God and they think, but he also doesn't care about the wicked. In fact, they are tempted to assume that that God actually delights in the wicked. You know, they say they put God to the test and they escape. God doesn't care whether you're righteous or wicked, or so they think. And that's why they're saying it is vain to serve God. We're serving him and we're not being blessed. And those who don't serve him, they seem to prosper and do well. So why? Why should we sacrifice our time and our money and our lives to serve God? But they were deceived with these ungodly assumptions that because God didn't immediately punish the wicked, that he delighted in the wicked. And that is a very blasphemous charge. These accusations were were blasphemy against God. To say that God does not delight in the righteous, but he delights in the wicked is blasphemy. It is wicked. Both these things are essentially two sides of of the same coin. The single accusation can be made that God is not just. These Israelites are making the charge that, that God is not a just God. And therefore, if he's not just, he's not worthy of their service. And if that were to be true, if God were not to be just, all of us would be here in vain this morning. If God is not a just God, we are here in vain this morning. We have to see they're making this accusation not based on the fact of the true and living God, but based on their ungodly and hard hearts, their wicked assumptions and expectations of God. That he doesn't punish the wicked and that he does not delight in the righteousness of his people. So we see these, these two false, the false expectations and the false assumptions come together to make the single charge that God is not a just God. Therefore, he's not worthy of our time, attention, nor affections. 
And God has a response to this. But before we get to this response, I just want us all to pause and to, to consider this morning. I want all of you to, to do some, some soul searching this morning and consider even your own heart of the question, is God just? Are you tempted, as the, the Israelites were, to, to make the blasphemous claim that God is not just? For, for those who, who do not know the Lord this morning, in your heart of hearts, you are tempted to think, why should I submit to the Lord? I have everything I need now. Why should I submit and sacrifice all this to come to God? He doesn't care anyways. Look at all the, the natural disasters and all the atrocities that go on in the world. He's not a good God. He's not just. Maybe you have wrong expectations and assumptions of God this morning. Maybe you need to, to do some, some soul searching and consider if you are, along with these Israelites, making an ungodly and blasphemous accusation against the true and living God. But even those who might know the Lord this morning, even Christians, I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we could be tempted to think this way at times. Because it is hard. When, when suffering and trials come, it is hard to see the goodness of the Lord in difficult seasons. We see in our society that unrighteous men and women hold places of power and authority and they, they prosper financially. And yet we, we suffer to size, put food on our own tables and we are tempted, I think, to sometimes have those thoughts, those ungodly thoughts, slip into our minds. But we must guard ourselves against these things. If you are ungodly, you need to check your heart this morning. If you do not know the Lord, you need to check your heart for those thoughts. If you are a Christian this morning, when you have these thoughts, you must guard yourself against them. And you must turn to God's word to see what God truly does say concerning himself. What these Israelites were saying about God was not true. They did not know the true God. But our passage continues, and we come to verse 16, and we're shown a very, very different scene. We're showing a, a group of people who also speak to one another. But these people are not speaking to one another, grumbling and complaining against God. They are what I might suppose. They're speaking to one another in true fear and reverence for who God truly is. These are the God-fearers. It says that in verse 16, those who feared the Lord. We come to the God-fearers. And what God has intentioned here through the prophet Malachi is to, to reveal what God's true heart is to those who are righteous. God is, God is here to reveal that he is abundantly merciful and gracious and generous to those who fear him. And so we see, even in our second point, the reality of the godly. We, we switch from the accusations of the ungodly, and now we go to the reality of those who fear the Lord, of the godly. And we see four very simple yet profound promises those who, who fear the Lord this morning, God hears you, he remembers you, he treasures you, 
and he will ultimately spare you on that last day. And full sermons could be preached on each one of these points. But we are going to rush through them, hoping to mine out some of, some of the precious um, realities involved in these things. So first we see that God hears the godly. This is their reality. We see this in verse 16. God says the Lord paid attention and heard them. As the God fears were were speaking to one another, presumably about the Lord, the Lord heard them. He paid attention to them. He had his very ear turned towards them to think of God. What we know of God, his, his greatness, his transcendence, the fact that even this morning he is upholding every single molecule and atom and electron in its right place in the entire universe. And yet, in all of his power and might, he has his ear graciously turned towards those who fear him. What a shame that it is for, for us to be Sometimes having these, these thoughts creep into our minds that God is, is not good. And yet, it's always so ironic that when those thoughts are creeping into our mind, it's often that we're not actually praying to the Lord. If we're, if we're honest with ourselves, if we know that God has his ear turned towards us, how much more should we be free and encouraged to bring our concerns even in difficult seasons, to the Lord, knowing that he has a special love and attention towards those who fear him. So if you are fearing the Lord this morning, you can, you can take comfort that God has revealed himself as a God who hears. He remembers his people. He's not distant, but he is ever near. But we see another promise. We see a promise that God also remembers the godly. We see also in verse 16 that a book of remembrance was written before the Lord. This too is of great comfort because this is to remind us that the Lord will never forget the godly. He will never cast them away. He will never once have his attention turned towards them only to to forget them in the future. In those dark valleys, he has not forgotten you. But think of even the comfort. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. He does not need to write a book to remember you. Yet what, what comfort that in his word he has comforted us with this promise that your names, if you fear him this morning, shall be written in a book. He shall not forget you. He does not need his Excel spreadsheet to keep track of who's who. He knows. He knows. But what comfort it is that your name is remembered by the Lord. It is written in his book. So even in those dark valleys, even in those seasons where you're feeling lonely, you can know that God has not forgotten you. His ear is, is ever near. He is a present help in times of trouble. He will not cast you away because he will always remember you. And so this is the great reality that that the righteous have to enjoy. They have the ear of God and they have the mind of God turned towards them. God will not forget them. And he will always be near to them. The third promise that we see is that God treasures the godly. 
He treasures those who fear him. If you look at verse 17, it says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. But we see here what a great privilege it is that the Lord looks at these God-fearers and says, You are mine. You belong to me. You are my treasured, most prized possession. It is like a bridegroom, a husband looking to his wife, treasuring his wife. He looks at her. He delights in her. He takes good care of her because she is the apple of his eye. She is the treasure of his life. In the same way, God is like that faithful bridegroom who looks at his people, his bride, and he treasures them. He loves them. He has a special, attentive, even sovereign, electing love towards them. He loves them dearly and he treasures them. And even you this morning, you might be sitting here and thinking, but I don't feel like a treasure. I have warts, I have scars and bruises. But know the great comfort that God treasures you. And even, he is sanctifying your souls even right now if you are fearing him. He is like polishing that nice trophy so that on the last day he might display it perfect that he might receive all the glory. The blood-bought trophies of Christ are, are being polished and he treasures them. And he will ultimately display them on that last day that he might receive the glory. So what a great reality to be treasured by God. He does not despise the righteous. He treasures the righteous. He knows them. And he hears them. And the fourth and final promise we see is that God ultimately spares the godly. This is arguably the greatest reality for those who are godly here this morning. That God should spare you. See, the irony is the Israelites were charging God with injustice. But here's the reality. God is a God of justice. So much so that he has to spare sinners from his just righteousness. He has to spare us but it is a great comfort to know that those who fear the Lord will be spared. And even as a father spares a son, it is a great fatherly compassion. What a comfort to know that sinners who were once enemies have been brought near, even as children of the living God, that they can call God their heavenly father. That is not a privilege that the wicked get to enjoy. That is a privilege only reserved for those who are fearing the Lord, to call God their Father, because He is their loving Father, and He shall spare them with a great fatherly and tender love and care. And so we see, and have seen very briefly, these four glorious and beautiful promises from God's Word. In the midst of these ungodly assumptions and expectations, these people who did not understand who the true living God was, God graciously reveals who he truly is. That he is a merciful God who hears and remembers and treasures and ultimately spares the righteous. He spares those who fear him. 
And so in light of these ungodly accusations, God assures us in this passage that it is not vain to serve him this morning. It is not vain to serve the Lord because he is abundantly merciful and gracious and he is good and kind and loving and he is your gracious and gentle shepherd. He is a good, just, yet merciful God. So it is not vain for the godly to be here this morning because they have these promises both now and forevermore. These promises are yours today if you are trusting in Christ. God hears you and remembers you and he treasures you and he will spare you. And this is true for you today if you are trusting on the Lord Jesus. And it will be true for you for all eternity. Yet while these are are great realities, we still have to circle back and consider what about the destiny of the wicked? God has, has showed himself merciful to the righteous, but what about the wicked? What about the wicked who test God and seemingly escape? Well, I believe it is helpful then, as we move to our third point, to consider the distinction of God. Verse 18 says, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. We've seen the charge made in our text that that God is not just because the wicked go unpunished. And it's tempting to look at this, like I said earlier. It's tempting for all of us to think like this. To think that it's not worth it to serve God because the wicked do test God and they do escape. Even for those here this morning who are content in their sinfulness, you're often tempted to think, but I'm winning now. I'm enjoying the pleasures of this life. I'm winning now. I don't have to sacrifice and for all I know, I might win in the future. I can enjoy my life of immorality and debauchery and I can escape. Who's to say otherwise? Well, God has something to say. But even the righteous here this morning, even those who fear the Lord this morning, you might be tempted to assume that you are losing now. We're in a losing battle. Society is getting worse and worse It's harder and harder to live with Christian morals and principles. And you think, but we're just losers now. And it's hard to hold fast then to these great promises of of God hearing us and remembering us and treasuring us and sparing us. When we're in the depths of despair and we are concerned that we are losing, it's hard to hold fast to the promises. I think we can see this illustrated quite clearly in in John Bunyan's classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress. In in the story, at one point, Christian and fellow pilgrim Hopeful are being held captive in Doubting Castle. And they're being tormented and tortured even to the point of near death by the character Giant Despair. Doubting Castle, Giant Despair. Doubt and Despair. Well, many of us are tempted to feel. Yet, this doubt and despair has paralyzed Christian and hopeful until Christian realizes something and says this. 
What a fool am I, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon, when I may well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise, that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle, to which Hopeful replies, That is good news, good brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try. This is good news for all of us this morning who are tempted to doubt, tempted to doubt the promises and goodness of God. We can look and hold fast to those promises and hold them dear that we might be liberated from all doubt and despair. And so we've seen these promises, but there's actually one more promise that we can hold fast to. Verse 18 is that promise. The promise this morning that should cause the righteous to rejoice and the wicked here to tremble in fear. Because God reassures his people that there is a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. There is a a dividing line that cuts through all of humanity, through all of history. It is a dividing line that cuts and divides between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and who do not, between those who fear man and between those who fear God, between the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. It is a dividing line that cuts through all of humanity and all of history. And this is to be of comfort but also of warning. Because it's a shame. It's a shame when men and women deny in their hearts that God is just. It's a shame that they assume they can carry on with their immoral deeds, that they can live life as is because they think they are on the right side of history. But they're not looking at the right standard. They're not looking at God's standard of history, His dividing, cutting line through all of humanity and through all of history. And they think they're a good enough person. They think that they'll be okay in the end because they might do some bad things, but they do some good things as well. But being a good person is not good enough for the just and holy and righteous God. And this is terrifying because God knows this distinction. You can't fool him. You can't fool him this morning. He knows where your soul and where your soul is this morning, where it falls on this dividing line. He knows, and he will not be fooled by your outward acts of righteousness. If you want to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah 30, verses 8 and 9 says this, And now go, write it before them on a tablet, and inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. We've just seen the great promise for the godly, that they will be remembered by the Lord and written in his book. But the, righteous, or the unrighteous will not fool God. He is writing your name in a book as well. Your name is going in a book. And God will not forget. He knows. He knows where your soul stands before him 
this morning. And even on that great and final day, is even if you look to the next chapter, in chapter 4 of Malachi, it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. This dividing line, this distinction between the righteous and the wicked, God knows. He knows where every one of us in this room stands. But now we must be careful because we also shouldn't make the other mistake that the Israelites had made and assume that we belong to the righteous when we don't. The Israelites assumed that because they kept God's law that they were righteous and that God should bless them, that they should be inheritors of these great promises. Before you, need, before you make that same mistake, you need to be careful in your own heart this morning thinking that just because you're at church, just because you read your Bible or you pray, just because you do any of those things makes you righteous before God. I want you to also turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. You might think that your deeds have made you right before God. You might think that because you are a good person, because you serve your community, you serve at your church, that you are on God's side of history. But be warned. Because the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, verse 10 and 11 makes it very clear. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. What we see here this morning is there's not one person who is righteous. There's not one person who is entitled to these great promises of God. In fact, this dividing line of God is what separates God from humanity. It separates the righteous God from unrighteous men and women. It is a dividing line that separates God from us as his sinful creation. And in our hardness of heart, we do not seek after God. We do not delight in the ways of God. Even our righteous, righteous deeds are not righteous before the perfect standard of God. So this dividing line actually cuts through between God and man. But if this is true then, what could there be, how could there be any hope this morning? How could there be any hope that any of your souls, any of your names would be written in God's book of remembrance this morning? You know, we just celebrated Christmas. You have the naughty and the nice list. If we're all on the naughty list, how do we get on the nice list? If even our nicest deeds can't get us onto the nice list, what hope is there that on God's list we will be written in his book of remembrance? Well, that is where the hope of the beautiful gospel comes. Because we can have hope this morning by looking to, to one man, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. We just celebrated at Christmas the incarnation of God becoming man. 
assuming human flesh to himself so that he might make a way that unjust, unrighteous, wicked sinners might be made right before a just and holy God. We're called to trust in Jesus this morning and to even trust in his perfect righteousness. To trust that Jesus came and lived a perfect and sinless life and died a sinless death, taking on our sin in our place. And that in his resurrection we can hope that his righteousness might be given to us, might be credited to our account. That God might see us as righteous not because of our deeds, but because of Christ and his perfect work and his perfect life. And by trusting in him, we are made right with God, not by doing things on our own. That is the mistake the Israelites made in Malachi. They thought that they could do it themselves. They thought they were worthy of these things on their own standard. But that is not so, because God's standard is so much greater and higher and stricter than our standard. But we can give thanks and be of hope and have hope this morning because Christ has come and he did live a perfect life. So that by trusting in him, in his perfect life, in his perfect substitutionary death, we can be seen as righteous before God. We can be brought onto the right side of God's dividing line. And it is only, it is only by faith in Christ that this is possible for any of us this morning. It is all grace. It is all undeserved. We're not entitled to God's blessing. But by God's grace, even though there is this distinction that divides God from sinful men, through Christ we can be made right with God. And so even as we begin to wrap up and close, how can we apply these truths to our hearts today? First, if, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning as your Savior, then you need to allow these promises of God to comfort your soul. In the midst of your trials and tribulations, of your sorrows, of your hurts and pain, you know, those difficult diagnosis, that hard marriage, that job that is hard, trying to raise your children in the fear and the instruction of the Lord, all these things can be difficult at times. But we can look like Christian did to the promises of God. We can hold them dear that God knows you, that he has his ear turned towards you, that he will not forget you because he has written your name in the book of remembrance, that on that last day you will be displayed as a glorious trophy for the glory of God and that you will be spared and that you can be made right with God. These are the promises that you can trust. Even in the difficult circumstances, you can trust in the sovereign providence of God that he is using your suffering to drive you to Christ, to take you to the cross, so that as your suffering 
grows deep, so too your roots of faith grow deeper to the promises of God, that your soul might be comforted. So no matter what even 2023 had in store for you, the difficulties or the joys, or what 2024 might have for you, if you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation this morning, you can be comforted and you can have hope because there is no suffering, there is no loss, no pain, not even death itself can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is a true and sure promise for, for all those who fear the Lord this morning. Second, I think if you are trusting in Christ this morning as your Savior, then you have the duty and even the privilege to serve Him joyfully. God knows even those who serve Him and those who do not. The righteous shall serve God. But here's, here's the joyful truth. The Israelites, they were mournful as they tried to serve the Lord. That's because they had the false and wrong expectations of God. Christ has fulfilled and satisfied the demands of the law on our behalf. We don't need to work to please God that we might be won over through his affection. He sees us as he sees his own son, Jesus Christ. And so we don't need to mournfully serve God. We can joyfully serve God, even as we yoke ourselves to Christ who has promised us and said, come to me, all who are heavy laden and who are weary, and I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a great promise that we can serve God with an easy yoke. We can yoke ourselves to Christ who has, who has done the hard work for us. He has satisfied the law's demands for us. And so that frees us to serve the Lord with the utmost joy. Not with, with mourning and sadness, but with, with true love and rejoicing and happiness as we serve God through our faith in Christ. It is a great thing that we can, we can look forward to, that we can not only be comforted in our sorrows, but we can press on to serve God with joy no matter what because Christ has accomplished and satisfied the demands of the law. And finally, I want to encourage those here this morning who have not put their trust in Christ. To once again examine your hearts. Consider. Have you ever considered this idea? You know, if you're a skeptic here this morning, you know, you're not sure of your verdict of who God is, have you actually considered this morning it's not so much your verdict of God that matters? It doesn't matter what you think of God this morning how logical you might presume to be. What matters this morning is what God thinks of you. What he thinks of you and your soul this morning. That's what truly matters, not what you think of God. What truly matters is God has revealed himself as just, and he has a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And if you do not know him, if you do not trust in Christ, you belong to the wicked, on the wrong side of history, on the wrong side of God's dividing line. So do not wait. Do not even wait till 2024, even though it is only 12 hours away. It is still too long. You don't know that the all-righteous 
and the very just living God won't demand an account of your soul today. You don't know that. He does. You don't. It doesn't matter if you're still not convinced. What is true is that he knows whether you belong to the righteous or the wicked, whether you belong to those who put their faith in Christ or to those who reject Christ. He knows, and he will not be fooled. And so I call you to repent. Repent this morning. Repent of your unrighteousness and turn to Christ, the perfect Savior who has satisfied the law for you. Your good works are not enough. They're not enough. That's where the Catholics get it wrong. Your good works are not enough. No saint is good enough to be on the right side of God's dividing line. Only those who put their faith in Christ alone shall be spared on that last day. So don't plead for justice from God. Plead for mercy through the blood of Christ. You don't want God's justice. You want his mercy. And that is what hundreds of folks here can attest to this morning. That is what God's word can attest to, that God is indeed merciful. He is merciful to those who call out to him for mercy. So if you have not done that yet, repent. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus for the salvation of your very soul this morning. And so we have pondered even this, this great truth this morning, that God has a dividing line, that he is a just and righteous God. He will not stand for the accusations of the ungodly. No, he will not be fooled. He knows who belong to the righteous through Christ and who belong to the wicked in their sin and hatred of Christ. And he will not be fooled. There is a distinction, but there is great hope. There is great hope for anyone who puts their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ this morning. So therefore, I will end where I began. Are you on the right side of history? Are you on God's side of the dividing line? Because that is the right side of history. That is the standard that truly matters. Do you belong to Christ? Do you stand with those who have put their faith in Christ or do you stand with those who deny Christ? Do you know where your soul lies with God this morning?